Hello and welcome to Talk 200, a lecture and podcast series to celebrate the University of Manchester's bicentenary year. Our 200th anniversary is a time to celebrate 200 years of learning, innovation and research, 200 years of our incredible people and community, 200 years of global influence. In this series, you'll be hearing from some of the nation's foremost scientists, thinkers and social commentators, plus many other voices from across our university community as we explore the big topics affecting us all. I'm Andy Spinoza, the host of Talk 200, and I'm pleased to introduce the first lecture of this series. In this episode, Chris Whitty, Chief Medical Officer for England, the UK government's Chief Medical Advisor and Head of the Public Health Profession, discusses the past, present and future of health inequalities. As a society, we face the hard truth that the more socio-economically disadvantaged someone is, the higher their risk of poor health. The world's greatest killer is not any one individual disease, but the unequal way in which people are born, grow, live, work and age. Listen on to find out what the main drivers of inequalities and disparities in health are, how these have changed over time and why addressing them must remain a major public health priority. Please note, this is an audio recording of Professor Whitty's live lecture at the University's The Whitworth Art Gallery. For the full experience, including the opportunity to see Professor Whitty's accompanying slides, you'll find the video recording on our YouTube channel at University of Manchester and on our bicentenary site, manchester.ac.uk forward slash talk 200. It's a great honor to be here. Uh, and um, when the president invited me to discuss uh, inequalities, I was very keen to do so because uh, this really is what drives a huge amount of public health. Uh, I'd like just to start off because uh, this is a global university with one slide about the global situation, because I think it is stark and it makes the point very clearly. This is a a uh, famous uh, update of a famous slide. Every country in the world is lined up with its uh, income on the bottom axis and the lifespan, life expectancy on the left axis. Two things are really worth highlighting with this and then one additional uh, encouraging point. The first is that uh, the line is extremely predictable. Poverty drives uh, poor health outcomes in every country in the world. But more positively, the great majority of countries in the world not actively at war are moving steadily from the bottom left of this graph to the top right. And the graph uh, scale is not clear on this, uh, but it starts at around 50. At the point this university started, the lifespan in this city was in the 20s. And when the NHS was formed, uh, the uh, lifespan in the UK was roughly where it is in most countries in Africa today. So things have improved in every part of the world, but there is a very long way to go. Now, I'm now going to move over to uh, the UK and specifically England. Uh, and again, this map, I think, tells a story that does not need laying out too heavily. The darker on the right, uh, the colour the greater the level of deprivation. This is the 10 deciles of deprivation. And on the left is under 75 mortality, 
uh, in the country. Those maps are essentially identical. Poverty and deprivation drives premature mortality with extraordinary predictability. Now, this is true in whichever kinds of infection or non-communicable disease you look at for different reasons. But I also want to highlight uh, another reality of this. And on the left here, I've put a, a map of child mortality under five in the 1850s. And on the right, a map of COVID uh, in its initial period uh, in the UK in this century. And I think two things, there's a good point and there's a bad point. The good point is child mortality, of course, has massively improved over that time. But the bad point is the areas of deprivation where premature mortality occurs are incredibly deep-rooted and have remained the same in this country in many areas, including around Manchester. So this is uh, something which I think we have to tackle as a matter of national priority. Some of the reasons for this are relatively easy to explain and with will and determination possible to tackle. I'm of course going to highlight uh, smoking. And I'm delighted that the government is aiming for a smoke-free generation. People being addicted to smoking in their childhood and then suffering for the rest of their lives, something they do not wish to do. The great majority of smokers wish they'd never started and are forced to carry on by addiction is one of the most appalling situations that leads to avoidable mortality in this country. On the left, we have deaths from respiratory diseases, particularly chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but, the, uh, but others. And on the right, uh, lung cancer deaths. Smoking drives a very large proportion of the difference that we see here. So this is a relatively straight, straightforward relationship because smoking is uh, the, the companies that promote smoking essentially do so among the most vulnerable. But there are also more complex relationships. This, for example, is on the right liver cancer uh, in the UK. And people often rather, I think, simplistically say, well, that's because uh, there's more drinking in uh, people who are living in more deprived socioeconomic areas. That is not true. In fact, the amount of alcohol and the number of people drinking it is higher in some of the higher socioeconomic groups, but the patterns of drinking are more harmful. So this is a bit more complicated. The more granular you look at the data for all of these diseases, the starker the differences become. And this has two implications. The negative one is we have an enormous gradient when you look at a granular level between the, the wealthiest and the least wealthy parts of our society. But on the positive side, from the point of view of what we can do, this tells us where we should go. There is a very clear concentration of poverty and deprivation related in, uh, illness uh, and disability and uh, uh, short lives. And those are the areas uh, we should be concentrating much of our effort. And this is true at however micro a level you, uh, you go. This is a classic presentation. Uh, in this case of Manchester, you can do this for almost any city in the world where there is a 10-year gap in very short distances between more deprived and less deprived parts of the city. And the same would be true 
in London, Glasgow, uh, or indeed Paris uh, and New York. Now, the reason that deprivation drives this premature mortality is uh, multifactorial. Some of the factors are relatively clear, straightforward, and should be addressed through public health. Many of them are much more complex and based on issues around diet, housing, working environment, education. For example, education is highly protective against dementia uh, and many other uh, conditions. Um, uh, smoking, as we talked about. But also importantly, uh, there is something called the inverse care law. Those who need most medical help tend to be those who get it least. And this is a very important mission of the university in training doctors, nurses, and other health professions to ensure that we have people uh, to serve uh, those who are in the greatest need. So that's one huge driver of inequalities in this country. But I want to highlight another one, which I think is less uh, discussed, and that is age. And here, the maps are very different. In fact, they are, to some degree, uh, almost mirror images of one another in parts of the country. In the dark blue are the percentages of the population uh, who will be over 75 years old. And as you can see, this is because of the pattern of migration internally in the UK, going to be very heavily in rural, semi-rural and coastal areas. And that is because the pattern of migration in the UK is generally people to move into cities and towns uh, in, uh, in their late teens or early 20s and to move out uh, typically after two children. So this pattern means that the aging of society is happening in the periphery uh, and the cities are remaining forever young. And you can see that very clearly in these demographic pyramids on the left, where Manchester on the left, because of its student population in large part, uh, to which this university contributes, has a very light, young demographic, but the equation has to balance. And therefore, other parts of the country are aging extremely rapidly. And this is leading to a division of certain forms of disease. So diseases of young age are concentrating in the cities. I have uh, picked out sexually transmitted infections. I could have chosen many others. This is a disease of youth, by and large, not, in, not exclusively, obviously. Uh, and uh, on the right, uh, I've picked out dementia, a disease principally of older age. These are in completely different parts of the country, driven by different risk factors. So this separation of diseases, which is actually accelerating, or at least uh, progressing uh, very uh, rapidly now, uh, is going to present us with very different problems in the future to those that we face today. And of course, most diseases are a combination in terms of their risk factors of age and deprivation. So here's coronary heart disease, and the two things that drive it are age and deprivation. So uh, coronary heart disease rates are high, where there is uh, both age and deprivation around along the coastal strip, for example, or in any place where there is either a high level of older people or a high level of people living in deprivation. What's spared are the areas of the country that are both affluent and young. If you superimpose most universities onto that map, I don't need to complete the sentence. And the same is true for mental health, uh, for complex uh, 
reasons, different parts of the lifespan, but uh, obviously a, a, a growing concern uh, already, a very major area where our research has been less effective than in some of our other areas of, uh, of work. When we look at individual diseases, and I will come on to my views about what we should do next, but I'd wanted just to, to finish describing uh, the issues. Some, let's just take cancers, and I've chosen cancers because Manchester University has put, has over many years contributed so much to our understanding of uh, the, uh, both epidemiology and the treatment of cancers. Some cancers are very heavily associated with deprivation. Obviously lung cancer, head and neck cancer, liver cancer, uh, at the top on the left there for men, for right, on the right for women, uh, lung again, uh, stomach cancers, uh, vaginal cancers. These are very strongly predicated on poverty. And smoking plays a very major part, as I'll come on to. But many of the cancers have very little gradient. So they will, they will not be uh, driven by deprivation, but they will be driven by age, because almost, almost all cancers, not all, are very strongly age-related. So they will go in different uh, directions in different parts of the country. And to make this, in a sense, uh, slightly even more concerning, what I have here, this is unpublished data, but Cancer Research UK kindly allowed me to show it. On the left hand of each of these bars, these are all uh, major cancers, uh, is where the 10-year uh, cancer survival was in the 1970s. And on the right is where they are now. There have been some stunning improvements. Melanoma, breast cancer, prostate cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma. These have improved in terms of their survivals immeasurably compared, or measurably but very highly, uh, compared to where they were um, some decades ago. At the bottom, however, we have a group of cancers, esophageal cancer, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and these are the ones in which there is a major socioeconomic gradient. So what we have been doing, and this is not deliberate, but it is a reality, is making substantial progress in those cancers where deprivation is not a major driver and making much less progress in those cancers where deprivation is a major driver. And that is just a reality. That's a fact. You can see it in the numbers. Not for want of trying, but that is a reality. And once you then put together large numbers of diseases, you then uh, see a picture which, is, uh, which complicates this further. Most people actually do not, by the time they get to the end, near the end of their life, have a single disease. They usually have multiple diseases, what's sometimes called multimorbidity. This unsurprisingly increases with age, so age is a major driver of this. But for anyone under the age of 80, it also is very significantly accelerated by deprivation. So people living in deprivation will typically get multimorbidity, multiple diseases in one person, making it much harder for them their families and for their healthcare up to a decade or more earlier than those living in areas of relative affluence. So this, again, has a very major inequality component, both on age uh, and on deprivation. Finally, before I move on to a slightly more uh, cheery part of my talk, but I did want to lay out the problem really clearly, um, it's important to acknowledge that whilst many things in child health have improved, we are setting uh, up serious problems for ourselves in the future. And the biggest one, I think, to highlight at this point uh, is uh, people living with overweight and obesity. 
And the deprivation gradient on this in children is simply shocking. You can see the data on the left uh, and where this is found in the UK on the right. These people will live with problems which will cause them longer-term issues, cardiovascular issues, diabetes, cancers, mechanical problems for the rest of their lives. They were set up to fail by the system we have in place, and this is driving uh, obesity in areas of deprivation. So these are the problems that I think we clearly must, as a society, address. Now, what should we do about it? Well, I think the first thing to say is I consider this is a largely soluble problem uh, if we are very serious about it. And this is both good and bad news. What this slide shows, and this is possibly the single most important slide I will show here, is that those who live in the most deprived areas live for shorter periods, but they also live for a much longer absolute number of years in ill health. Now, what that tells you, that's a bad thing, but what that also tells you is that if you can shorten the period of ill health, and you should be able to because biologically they're exactly the same people as the people at the bottom, they may live longer, but they'll have less time feeling unwell, they'll have less time in the NHS, they'll have more time with their families. Indeed, they'll have more time in economic uh, employment. Many of these people are becoming unwell uh, early in their working lives in reality. So shrinking this period of illness, what's called slightly pompously compressing morbidity, should in my view be the central aim of what we're, we should be trying to do in these groups. And I consider this as achievable because what we need to do is delay disease. If we all live to 150, we would all get cancers and dementia and heart disease and many other things, but we don't. If we can push diseases off to the right, we will shorten the period people live with them. And indeed, if we can push them off to the right beyond the point that someone naturally will die, because we will all die, then they won't have them at all. So if you were going to die at uh, 80 uh, and you have your dementia at 85, it's never going to be a, a problem. So pushing disease off to the right will compress morbidity, will pe mean people will live longer, uh, but it will also improve their lives and indeed reduce the amount of work the NHS has to do to support them. Why do I think that this is a realistic possibility? Well, because if you look at, take the long view of uh, medicine, it has a, had a stunning achievement in dealing with the diseases to which we have put our minds systematically, scientifically and politically. So this is the second half, roughly, of Manchester University's existence. In the first half, infectious diseases disappeared very largely from public view. They were still there just at the beginning of this. They're the dotted line at the bottom. Then we had a substantial increase in cardiovascular disease in this country, driven principally by smoking, but also by air pollution, working environments, and a variety of other factors, dietary and others. That peaked in around the 1950s. We then had a systematic attempt using primary prevention, stop smoking services and campaigns, uh, all the things that reduced air pollution would be examples of that. Secondary prevention, which came a bit later down that path, where we uh, started reducing blood pressure, dealing with high cholesterol and areas of that kind, uh, and curative services. And the, and the improvements we've seen, moving from a situation where roughly one in two people in uh, the UK died of uh, heart disease to roughly uh, one in four, which is where we've sort of moved to now, that has been done by a combination of primary prevention, secondary prevention, and curative services. It can be done. 
just as uh, we achieved it with infection. And if you look at the extraordinary improvements in infection over the time that this university has been in existence, uh, we've seen the end of cholera, typhoid, diphtheria, tetanus, uh, TB very largely, uh, and the bacterial diseases. And I'd just like to highlight on the right this sad painting by Lowry from 1935, the fever van. The medical officer of health would arrive. A child who had an infectious disease would be taken from their parents. All their belongings would be destroyed. They'd be taken by the state into isolation and their parents might never see them again. Those kind of pictures have, are now not seen because medical science has, by combination of prevention and treatment, de-risked to those diseases. So I've just taken cardiovascular disease uh, and um, infection in their, uh, their contexts. Uh, and in many of these areas, these improvements uh, continue. So this is from, the 1970, from, from 1970 through to just before the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, this is um, uh, coronary heart disease in younger people. And again, a stunning improvement over that period where the difference between men and women has significantly reduced because that was largely driven by much higher smoking rates in men. Those have come down. Sadly, rates in women went up, uh, coming down again now. Uh, but uh, public health and curative medicine combined have achieved a great deal. Um, scientists here, as elsewhere, have contributed to this. We could, by the single action of stopping smoking, substantially reduce the cancers which are most prevalent in areas of deprivation. One in five deaths from cancer in this country are due to uh, uh, smoking, uh, maybe going up to one in four. And one a fifth of cancer deaths in the UK are due to lung cancer, the overwhelming majority of which is smoking. So here is something we know what to do, and it is simply a matter of do we have the political will to do it. Then moving on to some of the issues of older age, as I said earlier on, I think that uh, we now need to think very seriously about what we're going to try and do to support people in older age and to improve the health in a realistic way. And if you talk to the average person walking up and down Oxford Road, and say to them, I can give you two years of life in bad health or one year of life in good health, the overwhelming majority will say, I want the one year of health, healthy life where I can see my family, see my grandchildren, enjoy my, uh, my existence. Not all. This should be someone's individual choice. As a profession we have in medicine, as a profession we have in science, concentrated for a long time on trying to improve longevity, and uh, we have achieved that to a very large degree. On the bottom of these graphs, what you can see is um, uh, under 75 mortality. It's been falling for a long time. There's a, I'll come to the caveat to that. Uh, over 90 mortality has hardly moved at all now for a long period of time. And that we should not see as a failure, provided those people are living good lives. Finally, I'd like to finish with a one bit of cheerfulness and then uh, one bit of moderately cheerful, uncheerfulness, and then a summary. This is what has happened to life expectancy in England over the period that this university has existed. I put the arrow where the university began. Uh, I'm not claiming causality, uh, but there is undoubtedly association. And science has done so much 
as have the doctors trained, nurses trained in this university done so much to contribute to this extraordinary turnaround in mortality. There's a but to that. If you extend the line further to the end, all of Europe, not just the UK, it's often ascribed to an individual country, all of Europe saw an inflection point roughly at the time when the big financial hit occurred. That's not particularly surprising to anyone in public health. We all know that if you reduce, uh, if you increase uh, wealth, you reduce health. You shouldn't be surprised if the opposite is also true. It is true. You can see it on that graph. This is every country in Europe, uh, big country in Europe. Uh, but there are two things you should see with this. The red line is the UK. The, the dark blue line is the rest of Europe. And we have been drifting down the leaderboard for some time, slowly. It's not one particular issue. Uh, and then, of course, COVID had a major hit for everybody in the UK and elsewhere. And we've got to recover also from that. So uh, my summary from all of those points. Health inequalities uh, due to deprivation and those due to age are both serious. We need different approaches to them and they are diverging geographically. It's no longer going to be realistically, realistically possible to only go to areas of deprivation. I think we need to think about both. We should have as a major aim shrinking the period of ill health. Because if we do that, longevity will follow as night follows day. But the principal point is that people want to live a good and independent life. Shrinking period of illness is the key to that. In my view, this is entirely possible if we aim to delay disease and start in the areas of deprivation, which you can see extremely easily if you just map them out. And we should have the same self-confidence to do that as the people who addressed uh, infectious diseases and cardiovascular disease in the last century, where they just said, we're just going to do this. Why do social interventions, non-health interventions, are of course essential, but we as a profession need to target primary and secondary prevention. Primary prevention, we do it to everybody before they get disease. Secondary prevention as an individual uh, intervention when people have got particular risk factors. And uh, finally, uh, turning to Manchester. Manchester has some of the best scientists, one of the largest medical schools, one of the most important areas of training for nursing, uh, and uh, it has also some of the greatest inequalities in the country. If you wanted to start somewhere, you couldn't start in a better place than Manchester. This is a serious thing we want to tackle, and good luck. Thank you, Chris, for a really vivid and shocking presentation of both medical and social science evidence of the connection between social inequality, place, where we live, and health outcomes. And by implication, the requirement for interdisciplinary teams and interdisciplinary solutions to get to your clear vision of healthy end of life. We now have time for questions from the floor. My first question, I think, comes from the second row. Thank you. Thank you, Colette. I've been keeping an eye out on Slido. And the first question that we've had through is, how can partnerships, strategic partnerships between philanthropists, universities, and other stakeholders be leveraged to address health challenges effectively? So I think that the question, in, in one sense, answers itself. You need money. For research, you need money for some of the interventions that we need. The state does that well in some areas. Philanthropy has had an enormous role in others. And I worked, for example, a lot with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation internationally with the Wellcome Trust here and other philanthropists as well. 
But I do think that universities have a very major role to play for two reasons. They train the people who will be still working on this problem in 40 years time, and they undertake the research that means we can tackle it in new ways, uh, accepting that if you don't move on, don't be surprised if the problems don't stay, stay the same. So universities, I think, have an absolutely central role to this in multiple ways. Thank you. And just behind you, um, thank you. Thank you so much for a wonderful talk. I really enjoyed that. My name's Anthony Jones. Um, you spoke so eloquently about the classical diseases. Um, and in order to improve people's health, you need change in behavior, um, for which mental health is obviously crucial. And you, you didn't speak much about that. And I wondered whether you'd want to comment on uh, that aspect. Yes. So, I mean, I put one side, I decided I was given a very stern instruction that if I stopped, well, you had to do 20 minutes. So I decided I wouldn't, I, I, I didn't want to do it poor justice by essentially giving a glib answer. On mental health, I would make three points on this. The first of which is mental health uh, tends to first present in uh, late childhood, adolescence or early adulthood. Very different to many of the other diseases I was talking about. This also means it tends to concentrate in urban centers. And I think we are much less systematic about facing that reality. We know that there is a significant workforce problem, both for uh, child and adolescent mental health and also with adult health. So that's an issue. But I think there are two things that we have not really tackled adequately. The first is scientific. The treatment of most of the diseases I deal with now is transformationally different than when it was when I was a medical student. In mental health, an awful lot of what I do now for the non-severe mental health, and even that specialists do for more severe disease, uh, is very similar to what it was, implying that in science, we have not man managed that transformation we've achieved elsewhere. So I consider that a scientific failure by us collectively that we should be aiming to address. The second is the significant rise in people reporting mental health uh, concerns and mental health issues in younger age over the last period, which was accelerated by COVID, but definitely not. It was clearly happening before that. We do not have an adequate explanation for that, how much of it is diagnostic changes, how much of it is uh, actual changes in risk factors, uh, what we should do about that. So here we have a significantly increasing problem, and I don't think we have uh, put adequate resource intellectually as well as uh, monetarily into trying to solve it. So I think the gap you point out is, is, a, is a, very, a very important one. And as the map of mental health uh, um, burden I showed uh, demonstrates, as with many other areas, this is quite concentrated in bits of the particular bits of the country, including uh, uh, around here. Do I have more questions? Another one from Slido. Thank you. We've had a couple of questions um, built around a similar theme, which is about to from Stephen Lowe in our online audience, deprivation ties into access to green space and lifestyle. Other connections between healthy environments and healthy populations, and how do we influence this? There are very clearly um, connections between unhealthy environments and poor health subsequently. And uh, there are multiple ways this plays through. Some of them are relatively straightforward to describe, like crowding, for example, very strongly associated with certain infections. Uh, lack of access to exercise, very, you know, exercise a major uh, protective factor for many diseases, physical and mental. There's also areas which intrinsically sound as if they should be correct, like green spaces, uh, coastal spaces provide better health outcomes. 
And that is true, but it is a complex relationship. And if you look, for example, at coastal areas, which are both beautiful and have coast and often green areas, they often also have high concentrations of poor health. So I think we should not, we should accept that there is clearly a correlation, but it's often quite a complex one. Uh, and one which I think we need to unpick. I think as we're moving into a greater uh, concentration on things like uh, social prescribing, I think we should be trying to, uh, to make a much clearer differentiation between the impacts uh, on physical and mental health due to the environment. Thank you. So we have one more question, and I'm going to give the privilege to uh, Professor Dame Nancy Rothwell. First of all, thank you, Chris. That was fantastic. Interesting, the stark geographical differences. Do we or should we be putting different health care systems based on geography of known incidents? Because I'm not aware that we do. You know, much more concentration on mental health, whether young people in cities, much more concentration of the diseases of the elderly. And it seems to me that there is a powerful argument for it now. Yes, I, mean, I, I think we should be accepting that because I think that the diseases of deprivation and the diseases of uh, older age are separating geographically, and that, that is going to continue, it, the logical response to that is to actually redeploy our resource, both scientific and clinical, and also public health, to essentially go down those two different areas, accepting there's a lot of overlap. And of course, there are older large numbers of older people in urban environments, uh, just as there are many people not living in deprivation and in good health in rural ones. But I think we, it, it does not make sense to try and provide the same service and with the same ratios everywhere in the country when you start looking at those graphs and see where they're heading. If you enjoyed listening to Professor Chris Whitty's lecture on health inequalities, be sure to stay tuned for the rest of our Talk 200 series. We'll be speaking to a diverse lineup of guests, including staff, students, academics, and other notable figures who will provide insight on a range of issues spanning cutting-edge developments in digital and AI through to inequalities in accessing justice in legal systems. Head to manchester.ac.uk forward slash 200 to find out more about this series and all the activity taking place across our bicentenary year, including our free festival, University Manchester, from the 6th to the 9th of June. Use the hashtag UOM200 to engage with Talk 200 and our wider bicentenary celebrations on social media. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talk 200, a University of Manchester series. Until next time.